Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me and let's turn to the Word of God this morning, Matthew 21, or 20, 29 through 34. As they, that is the disciples, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, that is Jesus. And two blind men were sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is life. It is health. It is breath. It is the spirit. It is the word. It is God the Father. All three together coming to us in this means. And I pray, Father, that as I speak this morning, it may not be mere words, my words, but that it may be words of life from your spirit with power and coming with conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All through Jesus' life, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the religious authorities came to him and said to him, show us a sign. Show us a sign. We want a sign. They were not moved by the signs that he provided. They needed something more. What they wanted, we often wonder. How could they not have been satisfied with the raising of the dead? Jairus' daughter, the woman of Nain, the widow, Lazarus. How could they have needed more? Perhaps it's that they didn't see those events but there were plenty of miracles they could have seen and did see. How could they not be satisfied with the healing of the blind? How could they not have been satisfied when a paralyzed man took up his mat and walked? How could they, how could they say, give us a sign? All of Christ's miracles were signs. Every miracle he did was a sign. The Bible calls them signs. But the Jews kept seeking a sign. They wanted a sign. What did they want? What did these these influential Jews, these leaders of the Jewish nation want that they weren't getting? The answer is quite clear, isn't it? They wanted a sign that would be fitting for them. They wanted a miracle that would be tailored to them. They were not blind, to state the obvious. They were not dead. They were not crippled. They were not deaf. They were not, they were not in need. And therefore, they wanted a miracle that's the kind of miracle that someone who has no need would accept as a sign. And so they'd have been satisfied, perhaps, if Jesus had thrown himself down from the temple and had angels bear him aloft so that he didn't strike his soul on the ground. They'd have said, oh, now there's a sign. 
They'd have been satisfied, perhaps, if he had called down fire on the Samaritans or on Rome. Ah, now there's a sign. They'd have liked that kind of thing. But they lacked need. They were themselves without tremendous need. And so the miracles and the signs that Jesus gave were not the kind of signs they wanted. They were signs. and They pointed to something absolutely powerful and glorious about the Son of God and about God himself. That God loves people who have needs. That God cares for your needs. But these men and women had no need. And therefore they were not satisfied with the signs that they saw. Occasionally, out of the dark, someone in that class saw a need. The synagogue ruler's daughter dies and suddenly he sees Jesus and he's willing to accept the kind of sign that Jesus did, which was to, to raise the dead, to give sight to the blind, to help poor men and women. And he becomes a poor man and woman, a man or woman, he becomes a poor man. And he goes to Jesus and says, I need you, I need you. And he saw a sign. And so we have a, a sign in these verses that teaches us a great deal as Americans today about why we don't know the power of God and what we must, what we must come to in ourselves, the point we must reach if we are to know the power of God come to think that the religion, the, the, the highest cult of America today, the, the most public religion is the religion of Apple, Apple computer. Apple is the religion of modern America. Some years ago, I dated a girl, a girl who worshiped her parents. She thought them impeccable. And I'm going to use that word a number of times today, so let me define it. Impeccable mean comes from the Latin, which means unable to sin or without sin. Peccator. Peccator is sin. Impeccable means not able to sin. Stainless. She thought her parents impeccable. Now that word also means that your life is pretty put together, right? And uh, she thought that as well because they looked the part. Each of her parents drove a new expensive luxury sedan. They had matching cars. Each of those cars was pristine. Each of them was washed every week. I never saw dirt on them. They lived in a perfect home in an upscale area of California. The mother looked like she went out and did her garden wearing Chanel. Every hair in place. The father just as good-looking as the mother, equally nicely put together in a very preppy way, both of them graduates of the same fancy Christian school. He, a prosperous attorney, and at work uh, successful in the church, an elder. She, the overall leader of Bible study fellowship in a county of almost three million people. They were stainless. They were sterling. They were conservative. They were paragons, impeccable, not only in their middle-class values, but among the Christian community of that county as well. Now, there was a problem that was not visible on the surface with that couple, and that was their children. One son had abandoned them in the Lord. Another had very, very deep issues, and a daughter, the girl I dated, 
who felt she could never measure up to the impeccable relationship of her parents and so never married. Apple. It's the American religion. You get a Mac and the unboxing is a religious event. You get an iPhone and you look at it with wonder and awe. You've seen the ads, you've salivated over the bold colors, the elegant typography. You want to belong. You want to be in the cult of Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive. And so you put in your order at the most elegant site on the World Wide Web, or you go to the store, which is the highest by far sales per square foot in all the retail world, the Apple Store, and you make your order. Or if it's in stock, you choose your computer. You take it home, that new MacBook, you open it, and have you noticed that the cellophane sleeve is just perfect? I mean, you couldn't put it on like that if you tried for a year. It's perfect. Perfectly wrapped, perfectly sealed. <laughs> the person who did it certainly had a college de degree in, in rapology. You have to have it if you're going to work at computer at Apple computer. It's an essential part of it. The box itself, well, the box is white. It has perfect square corners. Have you noticed that? It looks like it's made of wood or maybe concrete or something, you know, painted. It's just so perfect, rigid, perfect squares. It couldn't be made of cardboard. It's just way too nice to be made of anything so pedestrian as cardboard. Maybe it's fur or oak painted white. I, I don't know. And you look at it there in the computer and you're like my son who got himself a new Apple computer and kept it in the box for a full week and kept using his old computer. Am I right, Nathan? Yeah, okay. You know, it's just, it's too perfect. Why take it out and use it? It's, it's a totem. It's, it is, it points to something, right? You want to frame it. You want to hang it on your wall. It's not just Apple's computer, the Mac, that's that way. The Apple Watch, as beautifully presented and wrapped as the computer. The Apple Pencil, it's pencil perfection. Even the Apple dust cloth screen cleaner, nine inches on a side, a square of microfiber excellence, worth every dollar of the $19 you spend on it. And you treat the little square as reverently as you treat the laptop that you bought it to clean. You go to Best Buy and you look for the Apple peripheral aisle and there's a glow. It's just sort of this ephemeral glow in the sky, this, this, this cold white glow over this aisle that's filled with perfect white boxes with little black letters on them all hanging pristinely there. And you just love it. I mean, that is the kind of life that you have been called to lead. Apple, the religion of America. You are what you appear to be. And aren't you extraordinary? Outward elegance is better than internal excellence. Because having used Apple and Windows products for many years and having begun with Apples and having used them for 10 years before I switched to Windows NT, Windows 2000, having left Apple's System 7, 
And yet, having a family that is today largely enraptured of Apple products, the one thing I can tell you is that when you buy an Apple, you're paying for the looks. Because for the price, you can do better on actual performance. You can. I found that out. But America worships at the altar of Apple because there's no messes there. Everything is pristine, impeccable, and stainless, like my girlfriend's parents, like their car and their house, like their lives. We are what you see, and I have a bow tie on, and my shirt is so crisp, and my suit, did you notice I bought it this last year? And aren't I something? But this is a story about a man, actually two men, who are obvious and inescapable messes. And in it, we learn something about what God values. The value of being a mess, of messiness. Of being a mess and knowing it, of being a mess in the whole world, recognizing it, of being an incorrigible, irredeemable, self-aware, hairball of mess. That is glorious in the eyes of God. That is powerful. Now, a few words about this account out of uh, the book of Matthew. This is clearly the same story that's told by Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke mention one blind beggar. Mark tells us his name, Bartimaeus. Why just one beggar mentioned in Mark and Luke versus the two that are found here in Matthew? Because uh, obviously there were two. Matthew's correct. Mark and Luke are not in, are not incorrect they're not incorrect they're not in error to focus on and name just one the difference is that Matthew is more complete but doesn't make Mark and Luke wrong still why is one ignored in the other two gospels the answer probably has several parts first Mark and Luke weren't eyewitnesses and Matthew was and so as they've heard the story they've heard about the one second Mark and Luke probably know the history of the beggar they write of Bartimaeus Mark names him for his readers because this same Bartimaeus likely remains in the church and is known not only to Mark but to the readers. And so he names him. It's one of those rare occasions where the recipient of a, of a miracle is named in the Bible. And we always assume or think that the reason that the name is given is that this person is known in the church. <clears throat> Third, as Calvin suggests, no doubt one of the two beggars and he says it would be Bartimaeus, led in the calling out, led in the believing that Jesus could heal, led in the gratitude and response. There's a leader in every public act, right? There's never just perfect unanimity. There's someone who takes the lead. If you notice, as our fifth and sixth graders were down here quoting from the Bible this morning, that there was a leader. There was a leader in the back row, a voice that stood out, and there was a guy up front who was helping them out from below, sort of with his hands. John Johnson below. I'm not sure who the voice was back in the back, but I think I know. Obviously, there was a leader. There were leaders. And that is the case in these. And Calvin suggests that the leader was Bartimaeus and that the other guy followed. And thus, he's not named and he's not the essence of the story. So these two men hear that Jesus is passing by and they begin to shout. Now, they can't go to him, obviously, because they can't see. They aren't going to be led to him because everyone else is concerned about themselves. Who cares about blind beggars in the midst of a parade? Everyone is concerned that they see the parade, and they're not too worried about the blind beggars because they can't see after all anyway. And these blind beggars, well, they can't tell precisely who is in the crush of people. 
They don't know what's going on. They hear the sounds. They don't know precisely when Jesus is near or where he's standing. So they cry out. They do what they can't. They cry out over and over again, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. No one is happy with them. They're interrupting their own enjoyment of the spectacle. These two loudmouthed beggars are keeping everyone else from hearing what Jesus is going to say. They're shouting, and the others are saying, shut up. No one's happy. No one is happy by this need that is pressing into their ears and their faces, this loud, insistent, boisterous proclamation of need. That kind of thing is generally repugnant to us. Years ago, I would go to the Banner of Truth conference with both my brothers. It was a pastor's conference in Pennsylvania, in Carlisle. And we would go there, and there would be very solemn assemblies of pastors, and we'd sing hymns solemnly, and then we'd listen to solemn preaching. And it was generally a lovely time, but over the years as we'd go there, my, my younger brother with cystic fibrosis had his, his cough, which he'd had ever since he was a little guy, get worse and worse. And it got to the point where the phlegm that's the, the cause of death and cystic fibrosis often, the phlegm was choking him. And he'd be, he'd be in this very austere sort of colonial chapel of Messiah College, all white, all perfect. And he'd be sitting in the back between Tim and me, and he'd be coughing, and he'd be gagging, and he'd go, and people would, you could tell, who were sitting around us would, they'd put up with it, but as it went on through the whole sermon, they'd start turning around, these pastors would turn around and give them a dirty look, you know, get out of here, man, what are you doing, you're bothering us, we don't like this announcement of me, maybe if they'd known he had cystic fibrosis, they'd have They'd have been more gentle, but actually I think our irritation with beggars is pretty universal. It doesn't matter why they're beggars, we're just tired of it. So, we are clean. And we don't like being surrounded by messes. We like being surrounded by people as elevating as we are. People who lift us up people who make us feel good. We like being on Apple. We don't want to use some no-name brand. That's, that's our style. We're clean machines. Back in the day, when Cheryl and I were young and had first moved to Toledo, we lived on Chrissy Road, just south of the airport, and across Airport Highway, on the way to my church if I went one way, not on the way if I went the other way, but on the way if I went up to Angola and didn't go to Alban, was Stone Oak Golf Club. Stone Oak Golf Club. It was an ugly, swampy mess. It was the ugliest golf course on earth. If any of you have ever played at the old, now, Forest Preserver Metro Park, but the old Spit and Dival, or dribble, spit and dribble, spite and dibble, but it's known colloquially as spit and dribble. Well, that thing had nothing on the old stone oaks in terms of ugliness. Stone oak was a swamp pit. We lived on Chrissy, down from it, we knew it well. Surrounding the course, the, 
the stone oak course were homes. On the west, they were shacks, and still largely are today. Not all, it's been gentrified some, but shacks owned by white people. On the east side, there were big lots and big older ranch homes owned mostly by older black couples. So that Stone Oak Club was bought by a real estate development company. Cavalier was its name. And I name it because of what I think was the awfulness of what they did. They bought the golf course. They cleaned it up. They put in streets and services. They made it apple. And then, before they started selling lots, what was the last thing they did? They put up huge concrete fences all around the place, separating that nice gated community from the riffraff, the black neighbors, the white trash that surrounded it. Now, these are the type of people who surround the beggars here. They're saying, shut up, leave off, let it go, stop your shouting, go home, blind beggar. <laughs> and Jesus sees them and hears them, and he's aware of the, huh, of the nastiness that's been directed at them, and he comes to them. And suddenly the people are saying, well, look, he's coming to you. Okay, all right, all right. Jesus comes. He answers their need. He says, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he grants the request. And for a moment, at least, the crowd is no longer shouting at beggars. Now, who is truly blind? Who is truly the mess in this story? Is it the messy beggars who leave seeing, who leave worshiping, glorifying Christ, the son of David, recognizing him as the Messiah of Israel, which is what son of David clearly means, filled with joy? Or is the mess in the truly blind contingent the neat men, the clean men, the impeccable men and women surrounding the beggars who told them to shut up and go home. There are two things that are clear here. First, to be an earthly mess and to know it is a heavenly blessing. Second, to be a worshiper at the altar of apple, impeccable in your own mind, and to hope that we are so in the external view others have of us, is to be a worshiper of the false god of apple of appearance. And to be blind, truly blind, and a hopeless, eternally hopeless mess. It is a blessing to be a mess. It is a curse to be impeccable. So I want to speak first to those in our midst who have their lives together, who are relatively stainless you're not that mottled pig iron you're stainless steel you know you're not sitting there rusty and ugly you're bright and clean to the stainless to the apparently virtuous to the impeccable I speak to you if you're impeccable if you have it together 
Now, if you're in this class, this Apple worshiping class, you may not know it. You may not see your fetishization of appearance and labels and brands and their Christian equivalents because there are Christian equivalents of these things, aren't there, right? You have your Christian brands. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Piper. I'm of MacArthur. I'm of Osteen. Isn't grace wonderful? Acts 29, together for the gospel, all these things that we stamp ourselves with, the imprimatur of Christian cool and impeccability. And so, I speak to you if you're impeccable. If you like to talk about grace and not judging or being judged rather than crying out like these poor men did to Jesus, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy. Son of David, look at me and heal me. Son of David, have mercy. But you like to say, no, the grace of Christ. Oh, it's made me what I am. You understand we can boast in our grace. We can talk about grace and all we're doing is commending ourselves. These men only had reason to talk about the grace of Jesus once they acknowledged the awful mess that they were, their awful need. You're in the crowd in this world. You see the blind men. You see them around you. They're hard to miss. They're shuffling along through life while you're sprinting. They don't have what you have. They don't have the appearance that you possess. They're literally or metaphorically in rags and yelling out and they're obvious, explicit messes. They're as obvious and visible in our church and in your life and often as nearly detested as the guy standing at the sign at the exit of the freeway ramp asking for money. But these guys, these guys here in the story that Matthew tells they can't see you and they can't see anyone else so they just shout and you thank God that you're not like that because you can see and they're blind you have money and they're beggars you smell good they smell bad you have good hair they don't have a mirror and they couldn't use it if they did so their hair's a mess your appearance exudes capability I can do it I can handle it I'm efficient I have authority capacity and all their appearance says is slovenly mess need have you seen true beggars anywhere now I'm not denying the reality of the beggars that we see on our streets but they're not quite like the beggars you see if you go overseas the kind you find in poorer nations it's not pleasant I tell you it's not it doesn't make you feel good you develop a calloused heart quickly or you end up giving away everything you have I remember just a couple of years ago, a young mother with three little children, one of them badly crippled. They were lying at her side in the dark. It was 10 o'clock at night on a little portion of grass beside a building. I think it was a mosque, but I can't remember, in a big city. I think it was Amman, Jordan. It was late. They were spending the night there beside the sidewalk. They were sleeping, the mother and her three kids, the one crippled. One of the little children, I mean, there was a tableau. This mother curled up little baby, two other kids, one of them crippled. The one that wasn't crippled of the girls 
kind of reflexively as we walked by. I, I don't think she even looked at us, just kind of reached up her hand like, will you give? That's what she'd been taught. People were walking by, so she raises her hand. Need so deep, you can't do anything. And so you get hardened to it, or you go mad, or we gave all the cash we had, as I remember, to help. But it was nice that night to be an American with a hotel room. That's Amon, right? Not my monkey, not my circus. The need there, the Jordanians, they should get their act together and meet it. The same here in Jerusalem, these blind men, not my concern, not my monkey, not my circus. They're always there, they're always needy, they're always begging. Just be quiet for a moment, guys, so I can hear Jesus. He's new, he's fresh, he's exciting. I'm tired of you, I don't want it, don't spoil the moment for me. So they think that because they look good, because they're the Christian apple crowd of their day, they think they have a right to shut up those who Jesus came for. They're trusting their appearance. They're proud. They think external appearance defines them. And so they walk with confidence as kings upon the earth with confidence and even a hint of of muffled ego, pride. They may not be the richest. They might not be the very most beautiful, but they are definitely not blind beggars. And in their pride, they have confidence. So they sternly, notice that word? Sternly, that adverb, sternly, sternly. Tell the screaming bears, be quiet. Sternly, with righteous indignation and a serious mien. Stern men, stern women, impeccable, stainless. Shut up, you mess. Now, why must the blind not speak? Is it because Jesus won't want to hear them? Is it because God doesn't care about them and their need? No. No, because it's this stern, this upright, this impeccable appearing crowd had paid any attention to all of the prophet, they would know that the prophet had said that when the Messiah came, the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, the lepers will be cleansed and the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised up, and, and in the midst of all these Weaknesses and messes, the last one is, that the poor will have the gospel preached to them. And they don't want to be any of those things, especially the poor one. So if they cared about God at all, rather than just themselves, they would be eager to see what Jesus was going to do. They would anticipate blind Jesus a beggar, poor, the son of David. Wow, we're in a, the right place right now. They'd be watching for the blind to see and the poor to have the good news preached to them. But they don't. 
They see everything backwards because their vision is the vision of the proud. They see only their, their good side. They see only their righteousness. They, they see Jesus and he's just a sensation to them, not a savior. They don't need salvation. They're not that needy. They don't see Jesus in that way. They refuse true sight and they live on appearance. But it's a false appearance. It's not true. One of the interesting things I've learned in my life as a colorblind man is that sometimes I see things better than you do, <laughs> even if you do have colored vision. For instance, it's been well demonstrated, and I've told you this before, that colorblind individuals are very easily um, able to recognize camouflage that fools those of you who see with sight, because you see the colors. And you look at the colors and you go, oh, it all looks the same, you know, it's kind of amorphous, and you say, look at all the colors. But for a guy like me and those of us who are colorblind, we don't see the colors so well, so we've learned to detect patterns. We see things more by patterns, and we see the weird pattern. When you see the homogenous color, you know, and you go, you're fooled by the color, but we see the pattern. Does that make sense? Sometimes blindness lets you see things. And how gifted these beggars are to be blind. How wonderfully God has set them up for this precise moment. Every day of their life, every blind day, they rose and begged and went to bed. Every day that they did this, over all the years they did it, was worth it because the first time they opened their eyes, they see the son of David. The first time their eyes are open, they see their savior. The others don't see him. How sad to be this crowd, the impeccable, well-coiffed residents of Jerusalem who out of their plenty have no need and thus no desire to turn as beggars to Jesus. Outside Christ, outside running to him, saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, we are blind, all of us. We are living for outward appearance. And yet, even if you worship at the cult of apple of appearance, you have a deep uncertainty. It's the deep uncertainty that you see in certain older women who understand that their looks are fleeing them and start getting facelifts. There's a president whose wife had so many facelifts over the her latter years of life that she looked like a cartoon. Wealthy, powerful, and yet, and yet, I'm not quite sure I have it all yet. I could be laughed at by some. I'm going to get another facelift. I'm going to look better. And you know there's always someone out there on Instagram who looks better than you. And that little nervousness inhabits your heart. There is a deep irony here that the people who are the messes see while the seeing ones are blind. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a biblical truth. 
The Messiah will give sight to the blind. But, Jesus says after he heals another blind man in John 9, for judgment I came into this world. In other words, I came into this world to judge and that things would be judged so that those who do not see may see and that all those who yell at the blind messes, those who see, may become blind. So actually, the truth is that the blind men see and the seeing men are blind. That's the reality. And this is what is going on all across the Apple world of America today. People living in moral squalor. Their hearts are ghettos. Their lives spiritually bankrupt. But they think they're wealthy. They think they're rich. They think they see. They think they're impeccable. The advantage of being blind is that you don't get to live vicariously. You don't get to live as though you're that person or over there or in this dream. Why? Because if you live vicariously as a blind man, you end up being hit by the stinking bus. You walk down the road living your vicarious life with your Apple earpods in as a blind man tapping along with your cane and listening, grooving to Kanye West and you're going to be dead. You're not going to live through it. And so the blind, they can't afford the pleasures and the lazinesses and the self-indulgence of vicarious living. They can't even see the movie and lust after the woman or the guy. They can't do these things. They can't play the video game where you're a god. Boom, 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 going around and governing the world as powerful as any deity. No, they can't do it. They must imagine what everyone else sees. They fill out in their minds a reality that they're blind to. They're too busy figuring out reality to spend time on the unreal. They don't know white or black. They don't know ugly or beautiful. They can't just look and say, beautiful, ugly. They seek the real because they can't take reality for granted. They can't assume that they know what's real. But we, those of us who take our sight for granted, who think we are walking as kings on the earth, we take reality for granted, and so we love to pretend. And we see, so we fly to fake worlds. Just as the blind are seeking reality, we're running to what's fake, faceless till eternity. Imagining ourselves, defining ourselves rather than living in the light of God's description of us because we don't like that description. We choose looking good over being good. Thinking that we define ourselves by our appearance and having preferred the virtual to reality, the creation to the creator, the idol to the one true God, we live then on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. We live in movies, we live in books, we live in video games. We live on fawning words rather than truth. We speak lies on Facebook and on Twitter and we like it when people speak fawning lies back to us about us. We bow down at the altar of the Twitter deity and the Instagram influencer. We worship the gaming master by Twitch. 
and we love ourselves and worship ourselves, if we have the courage to essay forth into the virtual world of gamesmanship where we might get killed, but where we may just become a god and earn $300,000 a year playing on Twitch. We disguise the world we live in by our drugs and our alcohol. We seek to conceal the harsh truth of the world behind soothing appearances rather than live in the light of God. We flee sight as much as the blind seek it. We flee reality as much as the sightless need to know it. This is always the way of sinful man. We seek a world where God is not and where we are God's. Where we set the standards and God doesn't. Where we are unjudged judges rather than being judged by God. And our pride blinds our eyes, kills our soul, and is cyanide to our hearts. So those of you who like Apple, those of us, you are not what you look like. You are not how you appear to others. You are not your legend. You are what is inside. You are your heart. You know what? The Bible tells us you don't even know the depth of the darkness of your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible tells us. You don't even understand the depth of your heart's darkness. The only way you can begin to understand the reality of your heart is if you look at the dying Jesus and you see that perfect son of God, son of David, dying under the wrath of his heavenly father, becoming your righteousness by taking his, in himself, your sin. And few of us want to look at that. Fewer of us even want to understand that that is what God has decreed as the penalty for our lives. We were owed that. We deserved that. That's who we are. That's who you are. Impeccable as you may look. So think. Where has your heart been in the last hour? What gutters has it wandered through? What seedy districts of town has your mind gone through in the last 24 hours? What wicked acts have you visualized in the virtual world of your mind in the last week? Think of the sins you've contemplated committing. The things that you would actually do if you knew you could get away with it. And that, that seedy person, that person that never escapes the, the outward bright shell of apple, that person is you. That's you. And that is me. And we are messes eternally, desperately. And if we saw the truth of who we are, the truth of who Jesus is, then we would cry out far more insistently than these men. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, 
son of David, have mercy on me. Change me. I hate the appearance. I love the reality I see in you. Change me. Make me righteous. I don't want any longer to live worshiping at the fount of my own glory. I need you. Have you said this to Jesus? Are you willing to cast off the shackles, the lameness, the poverty, the deafness, the blindness that have gripped you, the true deaf, blind, lame shackles that have gripped you because you've been so focused on what you look like? Run to Jesus and say, I must have you. And he will do for you what he did for these two beggars. Their first sight, the glorious sight, Jesus Christ. And what did they do next? They follow him. Look to Jesus and follow him. Ask him to heal you, to make you no longer blind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ and his love for us. The way that he has taken on himself, he who was without sin, becoming sin for us, taking on himself our unrighteousness. We need him. Fill our hearts with him. We need him. Give us knowledge of our blindness without him. Fill us with your spirit so that we may run to Jesus and having run that we may see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.